from the time that Ruth got the pain, that it wasn't right. And I knew the day she went, actually the day she went into hospital, the very first time, I remember her standing in the shower, and I said, it's the last time I'll see your body. Perfect. But she was a nervy, quite a shy, quiet child, but she was so mature at the end of the whole thing. I don't, I mean, even looking at the kids, they go through so much, they all have this look in their eye, like this, this is not a very nice world, you know, that people do these awful things to me particularly the little ones, they just all seem to have the same expression. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking really to see them. She was so wise and she could tell you really what you were thinking. I said she was such a different, in three years, she had, eight, I think she lived her whole life in three years to be honest with you. This is Ruth's story. Ruth was eight years of age when a tumour was found on her pelvis. She spent 18 months having chemotherapy treatment in the Children's Hospital in Crumlin. She did not respond to treatment. She was then taken to Holland by her mother to see a surgeon there who decided to amputate Ruth's leg in an effort to save her life. This is also a story about the people who were with Ruth during the final stages of her illness. Ruth's mother, and the doctor and nurses on the home care team from Our Lady's Hospice, Harold's Cross in Dublin. Together they cared for Ruth at home and controlled her distressing symptoms so that Ruth did not have to live with pain. Ruth's mother, Anne, remembers the early stages when she still believed that Ruth's disease could be halted. The guy we went to was very good, the, the consultant, but his registrar, after she had the, the operation, we were sitting in the room, Sort of waiting to see what would happen, and the only way I could describe him is he bounced into the room because he knew what it was. You know, he said, "We know what it is," and I said, "What?" And he said, "Oh, it's it's, uh, it's a Ewing sarcoma," and like that meant nothing to me. He, I said, "Is that um, tumor?" And he said, "Yes," and I said, "Is it malignant?" Oh yes, they're always malignant. <laughs> like he was so insensitive because I don't even when the surgeon or the consulting came to us, I don't think I didn't even tell him that the other guy told us because I was so I felt God. I suppose it was his first year, but he was delighted they found it. She was terrified. Rose was terrified of needles. Absolutely, she went rigid, and I, like when they explained she wouldn't have chemotherapy for 18 months, but I took it up as 18 weeks. Um, it was an awful land that I discovered she was not for 18 months, so she was going to have chemotherapy for 18 months. They would decide in June whether they could operate or not on her. She went up on a Thursday and they started her off on the chemo. They put her on the drip on the Friday. And that was a nightmare now, given kidding. You see, once she saw a needle, she froze and stiffened up. And it, they put her on the drip anyway, and she was on it 24 hours. They have to hide hydrate them for 24 hours before they give them the drugs. So she was on that for the 24 hours and when it came to give the drugs, I mean I'd explain like, well she had the one needle and the drugs went in through, they leave a little little flap and the drugs go in through that, you don't have to have a second needle. But of course by the time it came through the drugs the vein had seized up so they had to move it. And, oh, it was absolutely awful and I'll, I'll never forget the screams of her. And, my sister-in-law was outside and she said, Snart, you must give her something, you can't have the child like that. And I said, look, because they knew she had a long road to go. If we give her like Valium or something to calm her down, she'll never cope. She has to cope. So I could see the logic in it. I didn't really agree with it, but I could see the logic in it. Um, 
I don't can't remember if the doctor actually used the word cancer, but he explained to her that she had a lump here, and or she had a pain here, and if she didn't have this treatment, she'd get another pain maybe on her shoulder, or another lump would grow on her shoulder, and that would cause her pain, and maybe another lump would grow somewhere else, and that would cause her pain. So they had to destroy this lump here, and they had to give her these very strong medicines, and they unfortunately had side effects that. What she had was bad, but and the medicine had to kill it. But the medicine couldn't differentiate between bad and good. And her hair was the cells, right? And her hair was a good cell, but the medicine didn't know it was a good cell. He explained it very well. So that's why the hair falls out because it kills off your hair cells. So she took that, and I said, "Look, we'll get you awake and everything before your hair falls out." That was fairly. It happened very quickly. Her hair falling out. It just. I think after the second treatment, it, um, I noticed it's like she got up one morning and there was little bits of it on the pillow. Oh, in about two days, I felt the house was alive with hair. It just dropped out all over the place. So, what a where am I now? Anyway, she, she went on until the following July. So it was from January 85 until January 84 to July 85. And with great excitement when she had her last treatment at a party and people in. I mean, she wanted people to come in and that. And it was the day I think she came out of hospital and like she looked like nothing on earth, but she wanted. She was very determined, terribly determined. And very determined that this wasn't going to get the better of her. I mean, I think she had great strength through the whole thing. As I said, every treatment she screamed and she roared, getting it. Hated the injection, had to watch every injection. You couldn't do anything. She would cry and cry, and then she'd rub her eyes, stop, 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 now, hold on, hold on, and okay, now you can do it. And she would be rigid in, on the bed, but wouldn't, she couldn't, wouldn't let them do it unless she actually watched everything. And like you say, like it's nearly worse when you watch it. No, no, I have to watch it. So say she finished in July, and I said, like, what happens now? And they said, well, she's monitored every month, and get back to a normal life and her hair start growing, grand. We went down to Wexford in August and it was only about three weeks later. Um, Ruth and I went out for a cycle for a long time and that night she had a pain and I said, well, the bike. So a few days later she had a pain again. I said, I wonder, should I do something? So I rang the doctor and he said, ah, no, it's probably the result of the radium. And that. But bring her over me, have a look at her. Brought over, had a look at her. No, no. It's grand. Another few days. It wasn't great. The only way I could describe it, and the same thing happened in Holland when I came back again, it's like somebody whose battery was running down. She was just getting more and more quieter and into herself. So I said, I'm not happy about her. Right. I brought her back again and they did a few more tests and was, had started up again. Ruth's doctors in Crumlin felt there was nothing more they could do for her. Her mother contacted a surgeon in Holland who specialised in bone tumours and he decided to amputate Ruth's leg in an attempt to stem the disease. He was thrilled. Now, it's the only way I can describe it. He was absolutely delighted when he came out of the surgery. He said, we've got it. We've got it all. And I said, what's left? And he said, there's nothing left. But I said, what's left? My leg. He said, there's nothing left. I explained to you. And I know he explained it to me, but it didn't. It just went straight over my head. But because they took the hip, the pelvis. So she came from here down like that on, on, on a, you know, the, the foot. Fairly well done, but everything, it was all the left side, everything was gone. 
God, what have we done to the child? So I think I cried constantly for about a week. Um, fortunately, she was very heavily sedated. Um, for the first few days so that I was able to do it, you know, but I I thought it was the most awful thing anyway. So, um, she just got on with it then. I went in one day, I remember that the doctor had said he passed by, they had a pulley over the bed and she was, oh no, she was, she'd pulled herself up and she was sitting up with her hands behind her and he was walking past and he looked at her and he went in and he said, lie down. She can't, and he very abrupt man, terrific with the kids, very very hard to communicate with parents. I don't think he liked talking to parents, he loved the kids. And uh, she lay down, he said, get up now. And she got up, he said, you're fantastic. <laughs> because he was, you know, she, she just worked it out. And she said to me after about two weeks, let me do things for myself. When I'm stuck and I really can't do it, I'll ask you. So if I can manage it, I'll ask you. And I said, grand, okay. Now the sensation of having her leg there, of course, was very strong. I, don't think that ever goes away. The funniest thing was she went to the loo one day and she started laughing. I said, what's wrong with you? And she said, I feel my leg is on the toilet. You know, you wouldn't, it's gradually, she said, she was very, very well able to describe her feelings and what, what was happening. And gradually, as she got used to the crutches, the leg got shorter. We talked about it and, and that was one thing. I think I talked more, I had more of a relationship with her than I ever would have had in, in if she'd lived to be 90. So, Anyway, that that for that was the end of April. No, that was the end of February. She had the operation January, February. Um, we came home for three weeks in April. That's what I was trying to work up to, and thank God we did because a lot of people said don't come home because you have to bring her back again to get the artificial limb. But we did come home and we had a great time that three weeks. We were only back in Holland a couple of days. And I couldn't, I got that awful feeling again. <clears throat> so she got a pain in the month, she fell one day and she got a pain in the shoulder, brought her to the doctor, back down to the hospital. I said, I'm not really happy with her. Have a scan done. Had the bone scan done and came back within the other leg. So, and then he did an x-ray. It's in her chest. So there was nothing then they could do, but this, <laughs> working up to the hospice, funny, when I was in Holland, I read an article, we used to get the Irish Times every so often, there was an article about a little one, Roisin was her name, um, and that's where, and I suppose it stuck in my head, you know, when I knew when I was coming home, I knew she wasn't going to go into hospital, and I just said, well, they would take over, like, I hadn't even thought that they might say, no, we're not doing it, I just presumed <laughs> they were this, this, and you'd think, well, it's my child, of course they look after her. I'm Sister Ignatius, a Ladies Hospice, Harris Cross. And um, about eight to ten years ago, we set up a symptom control unit here in the hospice. And it has, it has proved, it has proved so successful for the persons, the people coming to us here. And there are so many people who are able to stay at home and who wish to stay at home, even though they may be very ill, that we felt it would be lovely if we could operate a home care service and bring out the skill and expertise from this unit out to the homes. 
by this service we are able to help not only the person who is ill, but the family to cope with that illness in the home. Now, of course, it is important that there is good family support. The, the GP must wish us to come out because the general practitioner is the primary care person for every family. He is the prime and the public health nurse from the nursing end. And our service is purely one of symptom control to help and bring out what we specialize in in here and to help the general practitioner in the looking after of the patient. Kathleen Marr is one of the nurses working on the home care team who met Anne initially and she explained the programme and described the team to her. It consists of Sister Ignatius who's in charge of the team, Dr Brunley Hanley who is our doctor and then there are three nurses, Noreen, Cathy and myself. We we meet in the morning at 8.30 and we go down through the list of patients that we have at any one time. We have an average of 36 to 40 patients at any one time. We report on our visits of the previous day, discuss any problems that individual patients may have. It's a very important meeting actually because we anticipate problems that may arise uh, with, any, with different patients, with, each, with particular patients. Um, and anticipation, in fact, is a huge part of our job because, as you may know, when a patient is at home, families are very often frightened about what may happen to their patient or to their relative. Um, there are so many myths associated with cancer, with dying from cancer. Stories about people dying with pain, uh, dying, roaring, severe hemorrhage, choking, and families very often are frightened and waiting for these kind of things to happen. In fact, dying, actually dying from cancer is a very peaceful experience. But before that time happens at all, our meeting in the morning really is about ensuring the best quality of life uh, that remains for each person that we have. The Hospice of Philosophy is about living the best possible quality of life for whatever length of time is left and about supporting the patient and the family during that time. It's about helping the patient to come to terms with what is happening. Um, with, with the children that we have known, indeed, it's the parents who do the caring and the parents, the parents are obviously the right people to do the caring because it's the parents that, that, the, that the child needs to have around them and it's the parents that give the security. And I think a lot of our time is spent supporting the parents so that they can do the caring. So I went to the GP then, I think when we, I, I, at some stage I must have gone to our GP, explained the whole situation and he said, well, I have no experience of working with the hospice, so do you mind if I contact them? I said, no, I mean, it's up to the, you, I want them to look after him, I knew to look after. 
and he contacted Sister Ignatius and then they sort of took over from the Monday after that. And they were terrific and Dr. Hanley came up, I think Sister Ignatius came up first and then she sent, every day she sent one of the different girls up to meet Ruth as early and as quickly as possible so that um, she would be used to the four of them and she met Dr. Hanley. Ruth uh, and I, were, I was particularly very fond of, of Ruth. I found Ruth, um, because I became to, came to know Ruth so early on in her disease, that I saw Ruth beautifully dressed, hair done, out playing, fully dressed and out playing just after her birthday party. And here I knew that I was going to be with her through the transition from being a very well, jolly, at school, participating with her children on the, on the little cul-de-sac and playing with her friends, that I was going to take her through from that stage right through to the end. And for me, that was um, different than anything else I had experienced. Previously, I would have known a child when they had reached a terminal phase. Yes, Ruth was terminally ill insofar as that all curative treatment had finished with, but yet she was very, very well and mobile and uh, active and enjoying living. Um, I wasn't looking forward actually to taking her through um, uh, the well stage right through to the end. Um, that was a personal thing because I, I, I didn't enjoy the sadness that it would in, uh, entail. Um, dealing with children, you have to bring with all with all uh, patients. You bring yourself, don't you, when you're caring for somebody else. You know, when we were being trained as doctors and trained as nurses, there was a certain regime and a certain um, restrictions within which you related with your patients and related with with children. For me. Caring for children becomes very personal. I'll have to admit that. Um, I don't remain at all um, on the periphery or detached. Perhaps it's because I am a mother and because I have children that um, I might become a little um, more involved than, than, than normally I, I, I would with an adult patient because um, I sometimes come away associating the situation with my own home in my personal life. So from that point of view, um, and children are special, aren't they? They're so young and they're so vulnerable and life ought to have been so full and so long for them that it is certainly uh, a different um, challenge that, that, that we're taking on. And certainly for me, be it right or be it wrong, um, the caring for children is certainly a little different, a little bit of a different challenge than than um, than adults uh, present to me. I never told her that it had come back again, and we'd agreed to say she had a chest infection. And she firmly, the, she believes that. And the thing about Ruth, which was on, the only good thing, was that she had a bone tumor. Ruth knew she had a bone tumor. So they took away all the bone and they took away the bone tumour. So she had no bone there, so she couldn't possibly have the bone tumour starting up again. So that was her reasoning. So it was this infection which was affecting her. Now I said to her that 
she needed a lot of care and attention. We weren't going to send her into hospital. These people are specially trained for sick people at home and they'll just come and they'll monitor you and look after you and that was grand. No, no, she didn't mind that. Um, she liked them all. I think she was very confident when they were there. I mean, she would sometimes, I'd say, do, do you need somebody? I'd look after as best I could and I said, do you think, will I get Dr. Hanley or one of the girls? Yes, I think, you know, she knew they were there and they were great that way that, that they didn't fuss, they were very practical and, and um, I suppose she knew they cared, you know, that that made a difference. Um, they were each of them in their own way, they were different, but they were all, I suppose so, Uh, sure of what they were doing and and they just instilled confidence I think they came in how are you they weren't like they came in their ordinary clothes which for a start is great such Ignatius the only one who wore a uniform that she's known and um, so they were just like friends more or less coming in are you okay can I get you anything do you need anything they didn't make a fuss I mean they just come in are you all right do you want anything have you got everything yeah Grand. Okay. Do you want me to do anything? No. Grand. Okay. See you later. And they'd be gone again. They took the fear out of it. You know, I mean, they, they told me I was terrified Ruth would die gasping for, for breath. They said, no, that won't happen. It didn't happen. You could ask them anything and they'd tell you anything. They, like, they, they weren't evasive and if you wanted to know, they told you. And I suppose as Sister Ignatius said, death with dignity, and that's what it does. It, 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 you keep people as normal as possible and as comfortable as possible, and they did everything to relieve her pain. The challenge of relieving pain uh, has to do greatly with the emotional and psychological support that you can offer to an individual, and not just to the individual, but to the carers who are caring for the individual as well. And so the first thing I think is that that person has to feel confident and secure with the carers. And if they feel that yes you are competent, yes you can take their pain away and that you can alleviate the distress of their anxiety and their fears and anticipations and sadness and loneliness that if you can cope with that side of their emotional being well then their pain physical pain can be relieved so much easier there's no doubt that security is what it's all about and if a person if a family undertake to care for a person at home well then the community must be able to offer them as much support as possible and to be feeling to feel isolated and be on your own and wondering what am I going to do uh, are, are the things that we all work towards not happening um, the assurance that the family have that there is always someone available on a 24-hour basis offers tremendous support and, and security to a family. Sometimes uh, the family practitioner might be off duty or the public health nurse is off duty 
and all the familiar faces who have been helping them through the day are gone and the night is a long time and it's a lonely time and so it's very nice to know that there is a voice at the other end of the phone. Ruth, um, I'll always associate Ruth with um, Rhubarb Crumble. She was, one Friday I called to see her and she was becoming quite unwell, not being able to go out. She was four days before her death actually. We weren't to know that but she was. And um, it was Friday afternoon I was calling up to see her and she put her head out the top of her bedroom window and waved to me and we came, I came in. And she had the previous evening made rhubarb crumble and watched Grease video. And I went up to her and I opened my case on her, on her bed. And she was prim and proper. Um, and she looked into my case and said, oh, Dr. Hanley, your case is so untidy. And she hardly had the breath to, to say it all in one sentence, but she was jolly and we had a laugh about it. And, uh, we were good friends, really. Ruth asked me one day, I was examining her chest, and she knew though she was on tablets, she wasn't getting better. And Ruth was a highly intelligent child, and yes, she knew why her leg had been amputated. But she didn't quite know why she was so breathless. And she asked me, um, what was wrong with her chest? And um, I said that I made an evasive answer and she wasn't quite happy with what I had said and I had been examining the back of her chest and she managed to get me round to the front and looked me straight in the eye and said is what I have contagious is it like mumps or measles and I said no Ruth it's not not contagious and she said it's very serious then isn't it and I said I was afraid it was. Um, and that was that conversation. Communication isn't just words. It's the eye contact that she and I made that day that she knew. I knew from the tone, I knew from the insinuations, I knew that Ruth knew that this chest condition was associated with her worsening condition. And everybody said to me, I mean, all the, 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 the hospice, I mean, Dr. Hanley, Sister Nature said, she knows that she's going to die. I was upset because we had talked about everything. And I said, if she's gone through that on her own, I mean, I can't say it to her, but I, I felt upset that she wouldn't talk about it. And on the Monday, a neighbour came in to see her and her friend Julie was up with her. And she called me up, Bernard came down and... Um, she called me up and she said to Julie, would you mind, I want to talk to mom for a minute. Julie went down, she said, am I dying? So I was really glad that, uh, not that she asked me, but that it had only occurred to her again. I said, why do you say that? Well, she said, there a lot of people in over the weekend. And she said, when Bernard was saying goodbye to me, there were tears in her eyes. So I had asked the student, she said, what am I going to say if she does? You know, and she said, well, so did you say, she, we have to put our trust in God and that. So I more or less said, I said, we're doing everything we can for you down here but we need help so she thought about it and she said well I don't want to die I you know I, I I'm not ready to die and uh, I said well we have to trust God we have to 
put her faith in him. She said, I do, I do trust God. Uh, what was the expression she used? Uh, she said, I love God. She said, I wish there was something I could say that would touch his heart. And he'd know how much I loved him. That was amazing for, for a little one that age. Not being a very religious person myself, um, she seemed to have great faith in God. And, and funnily enough, at that particular time, our local priest came in and he was lovely. And he came up and he said, how are you today? And she said, I'm grand. And he said, have you any problems? She said, no, I've talked to mom and I've talked to God and I'm all right. Children somehow seem to be able to cope with, um, with life and with death and with the notion of dying more easily than adults. Um, it doesn't seem to be as complicated for children. I can only talk about the few children that I have known and whether they have been special children or not. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I suppose every child is a special child anyway. But certainly, um, they have shown amazing maturity for their years. They have been very wise. And maybe it's because they have had to put up with so much in their short life that they have learned in their short lives, but it takes more of us to learn in a much longer time. I remember Friday morning, Dr. Handley was here, and I looked at her, and she came down the stairs with me. She said, Anne, don't ask me. Because I kept saying, what do you think? I mean, how long is she? I know it sounds like, when is she going to die? But it's, it's kind of, you're afraid that they're, they're going to go and you're not going to be there. So she said, I don't ask me. She said, she should not be here. You know, she, she really, she's a tiny airspace. And um, she said, I don't know. She said, she's, she's amazing. She said she'll go when she's ready and not before. So Saturday, she got pretty bad again. She um, more or less went into a coma. She sort of lapsed. Now that day, I think they were certainly all here. I think the four of them were here, and Sister Ignatius. They were, I'm sure they were all here. And like we knew sort of was going. I mean, at that stage, I said either she goes or I'm going to pour something into her because I felt that she had suffered enough in the last uh, in the last few days anyway. Or I was going to go, one of us was going to go. So um, at about three o'clock in the morning, she suddenly, they said that she might last until the morning. I think some cast, not Kathleen, Noreen was here on, on the Saturday and she sat with her while we went downstairs and had something to eat. And she said, funnily enough, that to show you what they're like, Kathleen had rung her and she said, I'll go up and look after Ruth tonight. But she said, you're not on duty. I, she said, I'll do it. She said, no, you won't. She said, I'm on duty. I look after Ruth. So um, they, she just suddenly went. My sister-in-law was with her and her husband. And at about half three, Rona said, come in quick. Her breathing, her breathing very heavy and laboured. And it suddenly switched. And she died in about five minutes, just, well, it just got uh, quieter and she went. Ruth died at home on the 20th of July, 1986. She was 11 years old. Her parents, Dr Hanley and Kathleen, were with her when she went. It was some comfort for Ruth's family to know that she had been surrounded by people who loved her 
and cared about her. She was happy. I mean, she, she was at home and, oh, I'd hate her if she'd been in the hospital. I think, I mean, if it got, I think it must be more difficult, obviously, with an adult if you're trying to, I mean, I could live through Ruth in and out and I think about it, I put her in the bath couple of hours before she died, about 10 o'clock at night. She was, she was got very hot and sticky, and I said, would you like a bath? Yes. I mean, she, she was hardly here, but um, they were there. I mean, Noreen was there and said, I'll help you. I said, no, I'll manage, okay. They just seemed to be here all the time. I know they weren't, but they seemed to be here, and I suppose that, that, that is the, most, the strongest impression, so I knew they were there. If they weren't here, they were 15 minutes away. And like on, on the previous weekend before Ruth died, it was very humid, and Kathleen arrived up, and the room was quite small. She wouldn't move out of the room. I said I'd move her into our room, and she wouldn't move out. With the windows open, the door open, and there wasn't a breath of air. And Kathleen said to me, I saw somebody coming in with fan heaters. And off she went, and came back with the fan heater. Um, I think Dr. Hanley came up, she thought that was a great idea, getting the fan heater. That was in the afternoon. I said, Kathleen brought that. She saw somebody bring them into the hospice. She Kathleen them bought that. I mean, I mean, it was their property, but I wouldn't even have thought of a fan eater. The um, finality of a person leaving home for the last time to, to go away, um, knowing perhaps that this is the final time for them to go away to a, to a unit or to a hospital, must be very, very frightening and um, overwhelming for a person to, to do. Um, Whereas most people know that they are not getting better. Whether they exactly know the reason for their con worsening condition or their weakening health isn't always certain, but most people will know, in fact, that they're not getting better. And they will um, equate the worsening condition, the going to hospital, as perhaps for their last time. And so the, it's a huge... Um, psychological decision for them to make to to leave home and to go into hospital the family can see that 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 if the proper symptom control can be offered to a person at home that the best medical care is actually being offered to a person and still be with them um, at home well then they won't want to send them away to a hospital they want not to separate from their loved ones for as long as possible. A day is a long time in a person's life and uh, if they can keep a person at home for any length of time longer than, than uh, they had hoped for before the team might call, well then they certainly will, will do that. They accommodate the person as much as they can and I just thought that they The, 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 the care and attention they gave us was, was fantastic. So as I said, I couldn't say enough for them. Um, I don't know how they fit it all in. I mean, they have, I don't know many people they have on, on, on their books. And they always seem to be going, and yet they always seem to be available, which was the important thing. The only good thing, I mean, I went through all the, the, the horror of the operation, how I felt about it. I went back to Holland last year and I talked to the doctor over there and he said, actually, if Ruth hadn't had the operation, she would have died in extreme pain. But he said, in fact, you might have had to do the operation 
just to take her out of her pain. And he said, that's a terrible operation to do, just to save somebody from pain. He said, you're talking about maybe do that operation a couple of weeks before they die. Because, he said, her pain would have been terrible. Because where it was, until, you see, I suppose the fact that it spread because it, she was opened up, it probably spread out. But he said, where it was, the tumour had loads of room to grow. Because you could see it before she went back into chemotherapy, she was coming out here, she was quite swollen here on the side. But it had loads of room to grow. And before it actually burst out of that, he said, she could have had extreme pain. So that's one, well, I mean, at times, I said, why do we, why do we put it through the operation? I said, well, if we didn't put it through the operation, she would have died in a lot of pain. So I feel, and then she had February, March, April, May, June. She had four, well, she had three very good months when she thought she was going to live. So you have to, as I said, I actually, um, glad for her that she's, she's died because she would have had a terrible life. You know, I mean, I think we saved her probably from a lot of pain, but I think if she'd lived, I think Ruth was probably strong enough to cope with it. I don't know. I think she was young enough, but she was young, 11, but when she got into puberty and the girls going to discos and all boyfriends, I think she could have got very bitter. So she's been spared all that. And, well, I presume he's telling me the truth. Well, I know she would have died in a lot of pain. So, I think she probably went the best way. Oh, she was a beautiful girl. She was absolutely uninhibited. Um, she said whatever she had to say on each visit. And if it was a complaint, she complained. Or if it was to compliment you about something you were wearing, that was fine too. She was very, very open. Very open and very honest and it was it was it was always a pleasure to visit Ruth in fact because she was so honest and so open Produced by Una McCran, starting our 